Last Sunday, we focused primarily on Jesus' new commandment to love other disciples as He loves us, and we closed out John chapter 13. That's what we did last Sunday, and now we're entering into John 14. And John 14 documents Jesus' loving and tender response to His disciples who were now fear, uh, full, completely full, and just sort of overwhelmed by fear and a strong sense of sorrow because of the startling revelations the Lord gave to them during the supper, because they're still at the supper, the last supper. The Lord revealed several things to them that, that really just drove them to a place of not despair, but just great difficulty emotionally. Things that he revealed, like that one of them is a betrayer. You know, if you're, you're sitting with Jesus and there's 12 of you and there's Jesus, and Jesus tells the group there that one of you is going to betray me, the first thing I would say to myself is, I wonder if it's me. I wonder if he knows something about me that I don't know about me. And so that idea was still spinning around in some of their minds, even though Judas had been revealed as the betrayer, but very quietly, and he had left. Again, the disciples thought Judas was just going to give alms to the poor or get you know, supplies for the feast that they were about to enjoy, the communion feast, if you want to call it that, the Passover feast. One of them was a betrayer. That, that had heightened their emotions. Um, the fact that Jesus told them that he would soon be glorified through his death on the cross and would leave them, and we saw that in 31 through 33 of chapter 13, that didn't sit well with them. Even though they didn't comprehend and fully understand what he meant, they were able to put two and two together to a degree and know that he was going to leave them physically. And probably one of the other things that kind of typified their emotional status during that time was the fact that the strongest of the group, literally the strongest person of the group, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, Simon Peter, he was the rock. He was the strongest one among the rest. And the Lord gave a startling revelation about him that he, the strongest of the group, would betray the Lord Jesus in, in just a few hours, three times before sunrise. And also, if you look over in Matthew 26, 31, which adds added detail to the Last Supper, the fact that Jesus, another revelation, the fact that Jesus told the 11 of them, Judas is already gone, but he tells the 11 remaining that they would all soon fall away and be scattered. Matthew 26, 31. So, you know, you start this meal and you're during the hors, you're, you're during the hors d'oeuvre part and, and Jesus makes these revelations to his disciples. And, and of course, by the time you get to the end of this part here where he's making these revelations, they're, they're jacked up. They're worried. They're, they're fearful. They're frightened. And in chapter 14, Jesus anticipates the sorrow of their already breaking hearts. And he gives them comfort upon comfort in the form of five promises. 
And over the course of five Sundays, we are going to look at, firstly, the promise of Jesus' spiritual presence in verse 1. We will look at the promise of a prepared place, verses 2 through 11. We will look at the promise of answered prayer in verses 12 through 14. We will look at the promise of a divine helper, verses 15 through 26. And lastly, we will look at the promise of supernatural peace in verses 27 through 31. As I was pondering this chapter, because when you preach the Word, you pretty much have to study an entire chapter at once. Even though you're only going to teach on a small section in it or whatever you're going to do, you have to kind of have a a shotgun view of everything that's going on so you can maintain the right context. And and just just to know that these men were struggling greatly at this moment, so distressed, and yet Jesus amazingly, was able to to present these promises to them, to bring them comfort, despite the fact that he was about to go through something pretty difficult. In just just a a few hours, he's going to be betrayed in the garden and arrested, and then he's going to be beaten throughout the night, early into the morning. He's going to be tried. He's going to go to the cross, he's going to die on the cross, he's going to bear the wrath of God and these things, and here is Jesus, moments away from these things coming, and and yet he's entirely focused on the needs of the disciples. Any other man would have been totally unable to focus his attention on the needs of others, but Jesus is completely different from any other man. If you knew that you were facing death and the most brutal, heinous death, you are stripped naked and nailed to a cross for the whole world to see, are you going to be much of a minister to others a few hours before it happens? Are you going to be asking them to pray for you? Guys, I'm about to go through something insane. Would you please, I'm crying, I'm weeping, I'm sad. Would you support me? I'm pretty sure that's what I would do. And yet Jesus seemingly completely forgets about what he's facing and is focused entirely on 11 broken hearts. We could just end the message there just to show the empathy and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder he's our great high priest. In this particular moment, he isn't focused on what he's about to go through. He's focused on what his disciples are going through. He's different. He's different than me. He's different than you. He came to serve. Mark 10, 45. He he came to bind up the brokenhearted and comfort those who mourn. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 3. MacArthur put it like this. Here is Jesus Christ, fully divine, but nevertheless totally human, anticipating the most horrible kind of experience, yet completely unconcerned at this point about his own experience, and wholly absorbed in the needs of his 11 friends. 
surely already feeling the weight of the awful load of sin that he was about to bear, realizing that he was about to taste the bitter cup of death for sinners, he nevertheless took a primary interest in the sorrows and fears of his apostles. Jesus' words here in John 14 become the foundation for comfort. Not only for these disciples, but also for us. If you ever get to the point in your life where you feel hopeless because there is seemingly no way out of a situation, no escape, or no place to rest, you'll find tremendous comfort, tremendous rest in the words of Jesus in John 14. Martin Luther once called chapter 14 the best and most comforting sermon that the Lord Jesus Christ delivered on earth a treasure and a jewel not to be purchased with the world's goods. Now please take your Bibles and turn to John 14. This morning we are going to focus on his first promise to his disciples. And that's past disciples, present disciples, and future disciples. In other words, this isn't just about the 11 men that are in the room with him. This is about us if you're in Christ. And that first promise, the promise of Jesus' spiritual presence. Let's begin at verse 1a. We are not going to look at anything more than verse 1 today. And I have split the verse in two. So let's begin by looking at verse 1a. Jesus says this to them, again, in the midst of sorrow and anguish and anxiety and worry He's leaving us. This is what they're thinking. Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. These might be some of the greatest words the Lord ever spoke. Let not your hearts be troubled. Countless, countless disciples have found comfort in the Lord's words there. And, and, and this simple phrase is foundational to the entire chapter. It is the context. It is the basis for everything that comes after. Verses 2 through 31, it's all hinged and based on that statement. The fact of the matter is, the disciples were troubled. Their hearts were troubled. What is the Greek verb for troubled. We've seen it before in chapter 13. It's terasso. What does terasso mean? Emotional turmoil. Jesus experienced terasso when he contemplated the cross in chapter 12, verse 27, and when he considered his betrayer during the first part of that supper in 13, 21. Now the disciples were experiencing terasso. It was their turn in the narrative, to experience terrasso, emotional turmoil, strong emotional turmoil. It's a, a very strong Greek verb. Why? Well, R.C. Sproul says, in short order, they had been told that Judas was going to betray Jesus, that Jesus was about to leave them, and that Peter was about to deny him, covered these things. 
He says, can you imagine how these men felt upon hearing this series of dire announcements? Their hearts were troubled beyond description, exclamation point. Fact is, these men were beginning to feel the pangs as they pondered Jesus' prophetic words. But later that night in Gethsemane, when they would see Jesus taken into custody, and on the next day, when they would see Jesus dying on a cross, those pangs would become excruciating, unbearable. They're upset now, but when they see these things transpire, it's going to be even more shocking to them, more devastating. And here Jesus simply acknowledges their current emotional terrasso, their turmoil, and he anticipates how it will intensify dramatically in the, hours of head, in the hours ahead. But he doesn't want them to focus on it, on the situation, on the circumstances, and, and get emotionally bogged down to the point that they fail to stick together, fail to stick to the mission that he's given them, which was what? Earlier in the chapter 13, it was to love one another as he loves them. You see, he knows that they're going to be devastated. He knows they're devastated emotionally right now, but he knows it's going to get worse. He anticipates these things. And so he begins to address them now and then issues a set of promises that will bring them comfort so that they don't get emotionally bogged down and pulled off of mission, which right now in this context is to love each other the way that Jesus loves them. Very, very difficult to love others in a Jesus-like manner when you are devastated emotionally, isn't it? Very hard to have any kind of output during that time when you need input. Jesus verbally acknowledges their terrasso, not so that they can have a pity party, which is so common among us. We realize stuff is happening and we're devastated emotionally and then what we want really in acknowledgement is just a pity party. We want the sympathies. We want the empathy. We want people to pat us on the backs. We want hugs. We want all of that stuff. We want to kind of wallow in the mire of our emotional turmoil. He acknowledges it not so that they can enter into a pity party, but so that he can redirect their attention onto things that will bring them comfort and help them get through the tough times that lie ahead. Let not your hearts be troubled is not an invitation. It is a command. He is telling them, stop letting your hearts be troubled. He's not saying it with any sort of force. He's encouraging them. Stop letting your hearts. That's actually literally how it translates in the Greek. My ESV falls a little bit short, I think, of what the Greek was trying to convey here. It literally means stop letting your hearts be troubled. It is a command. It is a gentle command, but it is a command nonetheless. It's not, it'd be a good idea if you stop letting your hearts be troubled. He's saying stop letting your hearts be troubled. My paraphrase of 1A is stop letting your hearts be troubled and focus on the promises I'm about to give you because they will bring you comfort and help you get through travails, help you get through trouble, help you stay on mission, help you love one another as I have commanded, help you serve me. This is 
key stuff here because when we go through travails and experiences, it usually takes us out of the mission field. Some of us become reclusive and hide and we don't want anything to do with people or some of us just like to bog down other saints with all of our travails. By the way, you know, my hip, my this, my that, my hip, my lip, whatever it is, which is not how we're supposed to live our lives. Well, what about bearing each other's burdens? There's that component there. But to constantly bog other saints down with all of our trials and tribulations and travails and health difficulties and all these things, it actually becomes a sin for us. Because not only are we out of the mission field, but we're now attempting to take another saint out of the mission field, bogging them down with our travails and troubles. There is a right way to do this and a wrong way to do it. We're not supposed to be sociopaths or weirdos that never acknowledge each other's pain or never share our difficulties with one another. But there are some saints who have seemingly been baptized in prune juice, and that's all they ever do is whine and complain about everything that's going on in their life. And that's a sin. Not only are they off mission, but they're attempting to take you off of it. I once heard on the radio uh, Chuck Swindoll preach a message on this, and boy, he handled the subject in a, really in a brutal way because I, I think in his church he was dealing with this. That just people were just always walking around, ah, you know, my life, and ah, you know. And stop. This is a command. This is not a good idea. Jesus says, stop, stop. We would say this, stop going there. Don't go there any further. You're focused entirely on your circumstances not on the sovereign king over your circumstances, who's actually ordained them for your good. Oh, it can't be good. How could God do this? It's a command. And, and, and quite frankly, the first promise listed here doesn't look like a promise. It looks like another command. But it's a promise. We begin to look at it in 1B. Verse 1B. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Instead of doing that, do this. Believe in God and believe also in me. Here, Jesus acknowledges the disciples' faith. As pious Jews, they believed in God. They believed in Jehovah. They believed in Jehovah long before they ever met Jesus. These, these men may have been simple fishermen or what have you, but they, they were pious Jews. They believed in Jehovah. They believed in the God of the Old Testament, no doubt. They had that faith already. They understood things about Jehovah. They understood things about God the Father. They understood that He is omnipresent everywhere, especially among His people, the Israelites. They got this. Believing in God, believing in Jehovah, and affirming His omnipresence are basic tenets of the Jewish faith. Every Jew believes these things. Every pious Jew. They believe this. They believe that, that God exists. They put their faith in Him, and they believe that He is omnipresent, and they have a whole history to prove that God was with them. Their time in the wilderness, the, the issuing of the law, there are countless examples 
of how God was with them. The, the pillar of fire and, and the cloud at night, these things, these, they have the experiences. This is what they believe. This is what these men in this room believe. They believe in God. They couldn't see God because anyone who looks upon God dies because he's holy at a level that we can't comprehend. You put a sinner like me that's unredeemed and you put me in, in front of God and I turn into a burnt, burnt matchstick. It won't be like that in his glorious kingdom up above. But if he comes down here, I mean, you can't, you can't look upon him. He's too perfect. They had never seen him. They couldn't see him, but they could hear him when he spoke through Moses and Joshua. If you're thinking back during the, their deliverance out of Egypt, they could see his supernatural power displayed through various miracles, many of them performed through the staff, you know, the walking stick that Moses had with him. Just prior to crossing the Jordan River and entering the land of Canaan, God said this to his people. Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. Thinking of the people groups that were much might, more mighty, mightier than them on the other side of the river. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. How can you be strong and courageous and not fear those who are greater than you. How can you do this? Here's how. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. God is saying, I'm going with you across. Moses dies. I'm going with you and Joshua across the river. And he says this to them, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you forever and ever and ever. You see, the disciples believed in in God, and they believed that he, they, they understood that he's invisible, that they can't see him. They understood that he is omnipresent. And Jesus also acknowledges their faith in him. Believe also in me. So you've got a twofold faith here. They believe in the Father. They believe in the Son. They were convinced that Jesus is Messiah. They were convinced that Jesus is divine, that he is the divine Son of God. And they had literally forsaken everything to follow him. So Jesus, right out of the gate, acknowledges their faith in God, their faith in himself. They would need to keep believing in Jesus and trusting that he is with them after he is gone. Just as they believed and trusted in the invisible, omnipresent God. In other words, Jesus is saying, you believe in God whom you've never seen, but you believe he's here. You need to believe in me in the same way because my physical presence is going to leave. This is what he's saying to them. You believe in him, you believe in me, I'm going to be physically leaving. You need to believe in me, continue to believe in me, just as you believe in the Father whom you've never seen. This is what Jesus is saying. And you just, the impact of this, think of... The context, the broader context of the disciples had spent how many years with Jesus in his physical presence? Three years? Three years plus? They had never known, as long as they had known Jesus, they had never known anything but his physical presence, right? They met Jesus physically 
at, on the banks of the Jordan through the ministry of John the Baptist. And from that point on, they stayed with Jesus for three years. There was a, a few times where they were separated. I think the ones that I can think of is when Jesus stepped away to go up on the mountain to pray. That's it. Or maybe when Jesus sent them out by twos to go out and minister the gospel. But for the most part, they had never known anything other than the physical presence of Jesus Christ. Which means that their faith was primarily based on what they could see, feel, and touch. Right? I mean, Jesus is with them physically. They can see him, and it's much, to me, it seems like it would be much easier to believe in someone when they're there for three years straight and performing all those miracles and all. They, they had so much physical evidence. Their faith at this point, much of it was based on sight. We're in his physical presence. We see what he's doing. We can physically hear what he's doing. Their faith is grounded in the physical presence of Jesus up to this point. And that's not a bad thing. That's natural. But pretty soon, Jesus' physical presence would be gone, and they would have to transition from faith by sight to faith by faith, trusting in whom they cannot see, believing that he is still with them spiritually. Can you imagine making that jump? You've been with him all that time, done everything. You've slept near him. You've eaten meals with him. You've shared a fire with him. Maybe they had s'mores. I don't know if they went to that level. Everything that they did, they did together. And these men believed in Jesus, but so much of their belief was based on what they could see, feel, and touch. And now they've got to transition from faith by sight to faith by faith, continuing to believe, but in a, new, in a new way where he's not physically with them, in a similar way to how they believed in God the Father, who is invisible and omnipresent. Do you see what Jesus is telling them? You believe in me, I've been with you, I'm going to be gone, you need to keep believing, me, believing in me. The example I'll give you is that you already believe in Jehovah the Father. You've been doing that this whole time. You don't have a problem with that. You have no qualms with that. Guess what? You've got to apply that to me because I'm out of here. This is what Jesus is telling them. MacArthur's paraphrase on 1B is good. You believe in God even though you can't see Him. You also believe in me. Keep believing. Your faith in me must not be diminished just because you will not see me. I will still be present with you. Jesus wanted the disciples right here at this moment when their hearts are breaking. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He gives them this promise. But he wants the disciples to understand that even though he was leaving them physically, his presence would be with them spiritually. And his spiritual presence would become a source of comfort to them and for them. Down in verses 15 through 26, he tells them that after he is physically gone, he will send a helper, capital H. You can look at it. Well, who is he speaking of? Who is the helper? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit performs many tasks. One of his tasks is to, 
to bring comfort to believers by making them aware of Jesus's of Jesus Christ's spiritual presence. Did you know that about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, Jesus is absolutely omnipresent, just as the Father is. But in a unique, supernatural way, the Holy Spirit, part of His ministry to the saints is to manifest in a unique way the presence of Jesus Christ, the comforting presence of Jesus Christ to the disciples, to the saints. It's part of what He does. He he works regeneration. He does all of these phenomenal things. The Holy Spirit doesn't get enough credit today. He does so much. If you are a saint and you've been comforted and sensed the presence of Jesus, that's the active work of the helper. That is his supernatural work. Think of it like this, our context again, what Jesus is is doing for them. The disciples were greatly distressed because they were about to lose Jesus' comforting physical presence. But he promised to send the helper who will make them aware of his spiritual presence, which will bring them comfort. Now, some English translations say comforter instead of helper in John 14, 16. What does yours say? And some even say counselor. Does yours say helper? Does it say comforter? Does it say counselor? There's different ways to translate the Greek noun. And I think comforter is just a a phenomenal English word to use here because I think that captures... Now, helper is very broad, right? Help can mean... There's all sorts of ways to help a saint. But comfort is specified. It's specific to bringing, alleviating emotional difficulty or whatever these things are, to comforting someone. And I think this is a totally appropriate title for the Holy Spirit, comforter. Scripture calls the Holy Spirit our helper, our comforter, our convictor, our deposit, our guide, our teacher. He's got a whole list of names. And sadly, Roman Catholicism strips the Holy Spirit of his title and task and gives all of those things to Mary. She's our comforter. No, she's not. She's dead. And her soul is in the presence of her Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a great travesty that they have robbed the Holy Spirit of His duty and all of His phenomenal, beautiful biblical titles and applied them to Mary. It's blasphemous. The Holy Spirit is our comforter because He alone makes believers aware of Christ's comforting spiritual presence. Mary can't do that. Great woman. Saint just like you and I. That's it. Uh, I love what J.D. Greer has done. He's He's an author and a pastor of a church called Summit Church, maybe in one of the Carolinas. I'm not sure where he's at back east, but he said this, and this is gonna, this is gonna make the hairs on your arms stand up, and you go, "Wait, what's going on here, man?" Of course, you wouldn't do it with the Spicoli accent, but hey, man. J.D. Greer once said, "The spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you." Mm, sounds kind of blasphemous. Has he lost his mind? No. 
Jesus said something like this in John 16, 7. He's paraphrasing what Jesus said in 16, 7 of this gospel. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This is like one of those truly, truly moments. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. J.D. Greer just said it in his own way. But if I go, I will send him to you. These are Jesus' words. Jesus himself said it in a biblical way. The spirit inside you is better than me beside you. Now, if you were to survey Christians, the majority would likely prefer to have Jesus beside them, right? I mean, if you surveyed Christians, the first thing they said, I'd much rather have Jesus beside me. I mean, that's my first thought. Of course, I'm thinking of glory. And I don't think he's going to be beside me. I think I'm going to be on my hands and knees worshiping him as he's seated at the right hand of God. He's not going to be standing behind me going, hey, I'm your companion. I'm your sovereign Lord. I'm going to be like, ah. But if you were to ask Christians and just run a survey, I think that the majority would likely prefer to have Jesus next to them. And this is because they've never read John 16, 7, or because they don't understand it. They don't understand Jesus' words and how profound and powerful what he said is there. You see, you must understand about some of the things that deal with Jesus' incarnation and the limitations as a human being. Jesus could never be in more than one place at a time physically. Still can't. I'm talking physically. His physical body, which he has right now, and has the wounds, his, his death wounds on it, the marks are there, the scar is there. He has a physical, a literal physical body right now. And that physical body cannot be in more than one place at a time. It can't dematerialize and show up and reappear like a hologram in different places, but a physical hologram where you can touch it and there's flesh, you can't do it. There's limitations applied to the flesh. I can be in a lot of places, but not at the same time. I can be with you in spirit. I've never understood what that means. Be more like a ghost haunting you if I was there with you in spirit. In other words, Jesus could, could not be in the upper room at this point comforting his disciples and simultaneously be in the Decapolis comforting the brother who had formerly a legion of demons in him. He couldn't physically be in the upper room saying, let not your hearts be troubled, and then be on the other side of the lake physically saying, dude that had a bunch of demons that I cast out on the swine, let not your heart be troubled. Couldn't do it. Can't do it. He could be with one or the other because the physical body has physical limitations that even apply to him. Even now, he can only be in one place at a time physically. And Scripture says he is currently seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1.20. As far as I can tell from Scripture, he's not leaving that spot until he comes back to whoop some butt. Take his bride. But, but, but. But when Jesus left the earth physically, he sent the Helper. And the Helper brings the spiritual presence of Jesus to all believers, regardless of their geographical locations, 
And more than this, he puts the spiritual presence of Jesus into believers, into every true believer. You see the advantage if Jesus is next to you, he can't be with somebody else physically. If he goes and leaves and sends the helper, that helper can manifest his spiritual presence in a lot of people, every saint at the exact same time. There's the advantage. This is why it's better to have the Spirit in you than Jesus beside you. Because now Jesus is in you through the Spirit. So now maybe Christians would say, ah, I'd rather have the Spirit in me. Makes more sense. And Colossians 1.27 calls this, it calls the glorious riches of this mystery, because it literally is a mystery. It calls the glorious riches of this mystery Christ in you. You don't have Christ in you unless Christ ascends and returns to his throne. Let's put it that way. One saint can have the physical presence of Christ next to them, and that's it. If he's with me, you're going to have to make an appointment until I'm done with him. Then you can get an appointment with him, and then you can hang out with him. But because he left and ascended and returned to his throne, what happens? He sends the helper, and his helper, the Holy Spirit, now manifests his his spiritual presence in a tangible, real way in every true believer. There's the advantage. It is Christ in you. But you don't have Christ in you if he doesn't ascend and go. Only if he goes, the helper comes and puts Christ in you. This is phenomenal. Where do we go to find comfort? The spiritual presence of Christ. Where is the spiritual presence of Christ? In me. In you, if you're a true believer. I never have to go farther than the Spirit of Christ in me to find comfort. I never need to go farther than myself. I won't find it in my flesh. I'll find it in the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ in me. And you will find it in you if you're a believer. This is the promise that Jesus is making. What did Jesus tell his disciples just a handful of days after this, just before he physically departed to go to heaven, before his ascension? What did he say to his disciples some of his final words? Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. How could Jesus be with them always if he was about to physically leave? Through the helper. Through the helper. Through the comforter. Through the spirit. Through the counselor. When did the Helper come? On the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 1 through 4. That is when He came. That is when He came and came into believers in a way that had never been seen before, placing the very Spirit of Christ. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is actually called the Spirit of Christ in Scripture? Did you know that? Philippians, Romans... 
It doesn't mean that, that the Spirit of Christ takes over the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. But somehow, through this supernatural manifestation of the spiritual presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit is entitled the Spirit of Christ. How can I be with you always to the end of the age? I'm about to leave through the Helper, through the Comforter, through the Holy Spirit, which I will send to you in a handful of days. Closing. You're probably thinking, wow, you're really moving. Well, yeah, I only had one verse. I didn't even bring my water with me. I'm reaching for invisible water. Spirit, manifest the water. Now I'm being superstitious. The first promise in John 14 is the promise of Jesus' spiritual presence. His, and I, I just want you to listen closely, especially for a handful of you that I know are going through great difficulty right now. I'll repeat, the first promise in John 14 is the promise of Jesus' spiritual presence. Again, context, let not your hearts be troubled. I will still be with you spiritually, is what Jesus says. That's the first promise. It's their promise. It's our promise. And we're post-Pentecost, so we have it. They had to wait. And I will say this, and I need you to pay close attention. His spiritual presence is enough to calm the believing heart in whatever perplexing, troubling situation it finds itself. Did you hear me? His spiritual presence is enough to calm the believing heart in whatever perplexing, troubling situation it finds itself. Now the key to experiencing his spiritual presence and comfort that it brings is trusting faith. It's not saving faith because the disciples already had that. They already believed. But Jesus in verse 1 is, is challenging them to have trusting faith. Continue to trust in me. And so the key to experiencing, to experiencing it, not to manifesting it, it's already there. But the key to experiencing his spiritual presence and the comfort that comes through that presence of him is trusting faith. Trusting faith. Jesus put it like this, believe in God, believe also in me. Trusting faith is the antidote to fear. Trusting faith is the antidote to anxiety. Trusting faith is the antidote to trepidation. It is the medicine. If we are discontent, worried, anxious, bewildered, perplexed, confused, agitated, or otherwise in need of comfort, the reason is that we do not trust Jesus like we should. And that's precisely what was happening to these men. Now, they had a legitimate cause. They're going to lose the one they've been with all this time. They've grown so accustomed to and comfort. comfort. They're in such a state of comfort with his physical presence. And so I get it. The rationale is there. And yet they weren't trusting in him 
at this moment the way that they should have been. And that's why their hearts were so troubled. You just think about that for a moment. If we really trust Jesus, what do we have to worry about? The reason the disciples were so stirred up is that they had, to be, they had begun to focus on their problems. And they didn't seem able to put their trust in Christ at that moment. All they could see was the reality of Him leaving and the pain that they felt over that, the pain of searing loss over what would transpire. That's all they could focus on, which is a great distraction. This is why He commands them, stop, stop focusing on that. Stop focusing on that. And think about the purpose for the travail they were experiencing, the salvation of the world. Look at the good that came through his death on the cross, something they couldn't comprehend at this moment, apparently. And all they could see were their circumstances. One of us is going to betray him. Peter, the strongest, the, the Hulk in this group, is going to betray him three times. That's all they could think about. And meanwhile, Jesus was still with them physically, sitting at the table with them a luxury that you and I won't experience in this life. What a benefit they had. They got to walk with him. They got to watch him minister. They got to watch him perform miracles. They got to listen to every sermon. And they didn't get tired of his sermons like you do of mine. <laughs> his sermons were perfect. Mine are flawed. The advantages that they had. And Jesus hasn't even left them yet. He's going to spend several more hours investing and pouring into them, showing them these promises and stuff. And they're acting as if he's already gone. He's right there. They're listening to him. It's like, where'd he go? He's there still physically. And guess what? He'll be with you after. This is what he's promising them. And yet they just were entirely focused on the circumstances. The fact of the matter is every, every believer, every believer experiences this strange phenomenon from time to time, right? Do we not? Our circumstances can become so difficult, so chaotic, it becomes seemingly impossible to focus on anything else. Or maybe just flat out impossible, not seemingly. You ever been in the throes of such travail that you can't focus on anything but the travail? It happens to us. And some of us beat ourselves up for that, but don't beat yourself up. Take some grace. You're still a human being. You're just a saved one. But sometimes things are, are so challenging and so difficult and so painful that it becomes impossible to focus on anything else. And, and sometimes a, a saint comes along and says, you've taken your eyes off Jesus. And in your heart you're saying, shut up. An hour later you're saying, praise God for that brother. Praise God for that sister. That's what I needed to hear. That's what Jesus is doing for them. Now we also tend to equate the spiritual presence of Jesus. Now, this is, this is 
Okay, let me back up. Let me couch this puppy. Listen closely, pay close attention. This is a huge problem in church circles today. Some of these circles aren't actually church. They claim to be, but I don't think they are. Just listen. We also tend to equate the spiritual presence of Jesus with a particular feeling or with a particular set of feelings. Believers are always saying things like, I'm not sure Jesus is with me because I don't feel His presence. You ever said that or heard that? All the time. And in some circles, everything is based entirely on what they feel or don't feel. Newsflash. You will not feel Jesus' presence on this side of glory because He is not physically with you. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm just laying it out there. You ain't going to feel His physical presence because He's not physically with you. So stop using the terminology because it's not biblical. You can sense His presence when His peace comes over you, the peace that transcends all understanding, it goes beyond any circumstance. You can sense His presence when you experience and feel His peace. You can sense His presence when His joy, the fullness of His joy, comes upon you. You can sense it. But sensing and feeling are two different things. And people have gotten them crossed up today and they're basing everything. I don't think he's with me because I can't feel him. Or they say things like, I really felt Jesus through that song. And now when they worship the Lord, they're waiting for particular moments in songs where they can hopefully feel His presence, and now they can begin to tell others, I had a real encounter with the living God during that time because I felt His presence through the music. He was there with me. Newsflash, you did not feel Jesus through that song because He is not physically here. And Another newsflash, Jesus does not show up in a special way during certain songs. And some people believe this. Well, I tell you, we sang five songs that morning, and I only felt the presence of Jesus during song four. I am a friend of God. I don't know how anyone could feel his presence during that treacherous song. You know which one. I am a friend of God. I'm like, I'm going to... Run out of the building. I hate that song. And it was, it was written by Phillips, Craig, and Dean, who are oneness Pentecostals. They don't even believe in the Trinity. Big Valley, every weekend. I was like, come on. And then I stopped and I felt the presence of Jesus. You don't feel him during songs. You don't feel him can sense his presence. But it's not a feeling. Because if it's a feeling, then sometimes you're going to feel him and sometimes you're not. 
and you're going to be self-deceived into thinking that he's not with you during certain times, that he's only with you when you can feel him, right? That's what happens. But I don't feel him. He's not there. How can you feel him? He's not in physical form. If you are a believer, Jesus is, is with you and he is in you regardless of how you feel. If you feel good, he's there. If you feel bad, he's there. If you're like Switzerland and you're neutral, he's there. He's always there. He's always in you regardless of how you feel, regardless of your circumstances. He is always, always there through the Helper. Always. Which means that you can be comforted at any moment, any time, no matter where you are. Now, it could be that a particular song stirs you up because it helps to, to maybe, maybe milk, uh, help you understand a, a deep biblical truth in a new way, and, and there's an emotional response that's elicited. That's wonderful. That can happen. We have to worship God in spirit and truth, right, with our heart and with a mind filled with truth. So that's good. That's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that you felt Jesus or that he manifested himself in a special, unique way through a song. He didn't. He was in you the whole time. This is not the time to yell. Why am I yelling? <laughs> she says, that's a good question. I think I'm getting excited because there is so much despair among the people of God, yet they fail to realize that the Comforter is there. And they're waiting for him to somehow manifest his presence. Please, please show me a sign. Please show me that you're here. Please convince me. And he's there the whole time. We need to stop equating the spiritual presence of Jesus with feelings. This is dangerous. If you're a believer, he's with you in the good and bad. Nothing will change that. In fact, it is a wicked and adulterous generation that demands a sign from the Lord. Matthew 16, 4. Let me feel your presence, Jesus, through a song. It is a wicked and adulterous generation that constantly puts Jesus to the task to the task of, of manifesting his presence through various things. Show me that you're here. Jesus said it's a wicked, adulterous generation that demands that of him. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Show us another miracle. Show us another display of your power. Prove to us that you are physically here or that you are spiritually here at least. Is this not what's happening in certain circles? Every gathering is based on hopefully he'll show us something. In fact, if he doesn't, we'll go ahead and stage some stuff that makes it look like it. The guy that has actually a good leg will act like he doesn't have a good leg. 
and he'll be dragging it around the sanctuary, and then when that special song comes on, he'll be... <laughs> it's a wicked and adulterous generation that looks for these signs and that demands these things of God. Let me feel you in a song, Jesus. Reveal yourself to me through this. A holy and righteous generation believes that Jesus is already with them and in them through the helper, and that is enough. That is enough. You see, the problem today is people are not content with the Holy Spirit just as He is. They want all the accoutrements and all the other things to go along with it when the Spirit Himself can satisfy you fully by bringing you into the spiritual presence of our Comforter, Jesus Christ. The wicked rely on audible and visible manifestations, which aren't even real. The righteous rely on Jesus' inner spiritual presence. They know that Christ is in them through the Helper. And they enjoy His presence and rely on His presence and seek His presence, His inner presence, for comfort when they need it. We live with conflict, disappointment, and pain. We all experience hours of, of deep tragedy and times of severe trial, but Jesus is with us. Whatever your trouble, whatever mess you are in, Whatever anxiety or perplexity you have, just remember the Lord Himself is there with you and in you if you're a believer. Believe that He is with you through the Helper, through the Holy Spirit, and He will comfort you. He will meet those needs in those moments. But you have to have trusting faith and a right theology. He will comfort you in those moments. Know that He is with you and He will comfort you as only He can. As only He can. You won't find comfort in anyone else or anything else. Only in Jesus. I'll end with a beautiful quote from John Owen. He wrote, A sense of God's presence in love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears, and not only so, but to give in the midst of them solid Consolation and joy. Solid consolation and joy. Amen. So we have a wonderful opportunity now in communion to once again experience the spiritual presence of Jesus who manifests His spiritual presence in the remembrance of these elements, the broken body represented in, in the bread and the shed blood represented in the juice. It, we, we're actually, it's like we get to drop right into this narrative, into this historical event and sit with him and the 11 right there at the table and celebrate the Lord's Supper. How wonderful 
we can enter into his presence in another unique, special way now because he manifests his spiritual presence during this time among his people. So he's, he's in you, and he's our source of comfort. And now we get to step into the dinner narrative and enjoy a meal and feast with the Lord, believing that he is with us spiritually, believing that he died on a cross for us, believing that he shed his blood for the remission of our sin. What a spectacular thing we get to do every week. And I think we take it for granted because we do it so often. Every week, it's, it really is one of the highlights of what we do here. So, so as you go and get the, the bread and the juice, you bring them back and just confess whatever sin you have and just believe that Jesus is in you and with you right now. And draw comfort from his spiritual presence and take those two things in, in a celebratory way, toasting him for what he's done and accomplished for you. None of what we've been talking about or that we ever talk about at this church means anything apart from his death. Our faith is it's nothing. We may as well trust in dumb wooden idols. He died. And that's what that represents. But not only did he die, what does that represent on the other side of that where they fill that tank with water? What does that represent? Baptism, which represents what? That he rose. That he rose victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. For you. For this guy. Get your stuff confess, spend some time in his presence, ask him to strengthen you, to comfort you, and then we'll sing one more song together. Amen? Amen. Help yourselves. <laughs>